Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Rachel. And I'm Ben. And this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. Today, we're doing a special episode analysing the local election results. So all the local election results are in. The Conservatives lost 48 councils and over a 1,000 councillors, more than their expectations management operation said that they would. Labour gained 22 councils and 500 councillors, while the Lib Dems gained 12 councils, and the Greens took majority control of a council for the first time in mid-Suffolk. So I know all of you had your snap reaction on the morning after the local elections, but we now have more of a full picture of the results. So has it changed your analysis at all since that morning? I'm going to go to you first, Ben, because I know you've been poring over your election maps. And also you have won a council seat yourself. So congratulations. Thank you very much. I say literally bowing to the webcam. (laughs) (laughs) So so where were we? Friday, 10am. I was literally asleep four minutes before we started recording. When we did that, now I've had a lot of sleep and I'm very happy. Yes, what I said then was pretty much the pollsters should be vindicated. What we're seeing nationally is a 15-point Labour lead. And that is, to be honest with you, what we are seeing reflected in this. This is where I take a different opinion to what we've heard from Sky and the BBC and a few other academics, which is this. Local elections are not general elections. Turnout is lower. Turnout is differential. And what I mean by that is different party supporters aren't as enthused about local elections uh, as others. I remember Ian Warren, the strategist who used to work for Labour, always said that Labour voters don't often come out in local elections as much as Tory voters. And that's true. That is born in the data that that is reflected in polling and whatever. And even then, even factoring for that, it's still still a pretty bad showing for the Conservatives and a good one for Labour. Here's the thing. In key marginal seats, Labour are coming ahead of the Conservatives. In far-off not even marginal, Labour are doing much better. So how about this? They're leading in Bury. Actually, I think they took the popular vote in Bolton, which was a first for a few times. They lead in Dudley North, which, by the way, was 66% Conservative in 2019. They even edge it in Grimsby and Hartlepool and Thurrock and Thanet and Dover and even Aldershot and Cannock Chase, which is not it's not even a reasonable Labour target. So th- th- this is where we stand. Labour is... The offensive on conservative seats is perhaps 
the broadest and most varied we've seen since the 1990s. You are seeing conservative losses in both marginal constituencies that we all pour over, Red Wall England, but you're also seeing them lose quite badly in seats they would otherwise have taken for granted. We're talking whole, the whole, the entirety of Oxfordshire. You're talking the Greens coming out of nowhere in Lewis, in, in Sussex. You're talking the Greens, yes, not just taking mid-Suffolk, but coming quite close in East Suffolk as well. There is something going on in countryside England where Conservative voters are disaffected with the status quo and are looking elsewhere. And we haven't really seen anything like that, I think, since the 1990s. In terms of council control, it's not like 1995. If any of you, if any of our listeners are quite nerdy, in 1995, Labour almost swept every single council control in England. But it's not like that because we elect our council seats in thirds. But to tell you the truth, it does feel a lot like that. But just to get back to my original point, the pollsters should feel vindicated. We are at a Labour lead of 15 or so percentage points, and we are seeing a lot more tactical voting than we used to a few years ago. The willingness of Labour voters to go green and the Greens to stand down in Labour targets, in some Labour targets, is actually quite interesting. We've seen that quite a lot. We're seeing more Tory versus single party content. So instead of it being Tory mm. versus Labour, Lib Dem, Green, it's actually Tory versus Labour, with the Lib Dems and Greens standing down, and Tory versus Green, with the Labour and Lib Dems standing down, and Labour sometimes do. We're seeing a lot more of that. We're seeing a, it seems to be that no one on the ground will really admit it, really. <laughs> when you went to Bracknell Forest yourself, no one will admit to no. agreeing to a progressive alliance, but we know it's happening and it, and it is bearing fruit. And I think that is what we saw on May the 4th. Yeah. And Fre Freddie and Rachel, would you agree that with Ben's analysis or have you had a different journey over the weekend as all of the results have come out? And do you have different feelings about your snap analysis on the results? No, I think we were broadly there. I think the extent of how badly the Conservatives have done has really come to the fore over the weekend. Once we got that final figure and once we looked into it a little bit more, I think what Ben was saying there about having a Tory candidate and then a non-Tory candidate summed up much of the election. You saw, for instance, we've spoken of before about this, the Lib Dem strategy about focusing on those home counties. And you really saw that. You saw that in Hertfordshire. You saw that in a little bit in St. Albans. They didn't take Dacrum as they might have wanted mm. to, but they did take Hartsmere. So what you were seeing there is some, as the Lib Dems forecast and as they wanted to happen, some uh, Labour, basically anti-Tory Londoners move out as we saw demographic changes moving away from London. That was just what's happening in the South. I think more broadly as well, you were seeing the economy reassert itself. Brexit as a cultural issue and as, a, you know, as such a powerful force in 2019 is slipped away from the political mm -hmm. imagination. And that's I think that's one reason why Leave voters are much more happy to return to Labour as well, that as the cost of living crisis becomes a much more, as becomes the political issue. Yeah, and I think it's hard to overstate how bad it was for Rishi Sunak and also his brand of government. We were speaking just before we started recording about how so many people in the past few months or so have been saying, OK, look, Rishi Sunak is actually reviving the Conservative brand and he has put a suit on and he has <laughs> started leading as a competent person. But I just don't think 
as I think we said before, I don't think that was ever enough in, for a few reasons. First of all, Rishi Sunak has been connected and part of these governments over the past two years. He did. He wasn't there when Liz Truss had a chaotic time in office, but he was a key part of Boris Johnson's government. And then also, as we've also spoken about before, the fundamentals are so bad that you can't just say, OK, we're going to deal with scandals in Westminster slightly better. We're going to deal with corruption slightly better. We are going to try and actually govern in certain respects and get a better relationship with the EU. That is just not enough. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Rachel? Yeah, I think one of the things I'd point out is that, as Ben said, Labour is winning in a lot of those like key marginals that it needs to win at the next election. I just think 2019 feels like such a long time ago now. Yeah. Mm. What, there were a couple of votes off taking overall Labour, were a couple of votes off taking overall control in Hartlepool, for example, mm. which they lost in that by-election. And the results that stood out for me were all the ones in Kent, Medway, where Labour's not been in control for 20 years. And Thanet, which that's a place that I immediately associate with Nigel Farage. Yeah. And the, the sort of political rhetoric all the way running up to the local elections was stop the boats, stop the boat. And just talking about migration in the most extreme terms from the Conservatives. So they were obviously targeting hard those Leave voters in Kent and what have you. And just that they completely failed. They were so far off the mark. It's unbelievable. So those are the things that stood out for me, really. Yeah, I was looking at some of the results and that Medway win was a particularly interesting one because it's the first time they've taken majority control since those early Blair years. But also the last time I went to Rochester for a work thing, it was when there'd been a defection of a Tory MP to UKIP in the seat and there had to be a by-election. And the politics of (laughs) when I was going around door knocking then to think that sort of a council that represents some of those voters would swing Labour's way at this stage seemed quite unlikely. So I agree, those days do feel like a really long time ago. And then yes, to echo Ben's point about this sort of parties working together a bit more cleverly on the ground. I saw that in Bracknell Forest. Obviously, Greens, Labour and Lib Dems there all told me that there was no pact, but actually there weren't any seats where the Lib Dems were standing, where Labour was rivaling that that seat with them. So there was obviously something going on there and you can see it really paid off. Labour's won majority control of that council for the first time again since I think the first the last time that happened was in 1995 and they went up from four to 22 and the Lib Dems from one to seven and the Greens got a couple of seats as well and that's just completely switched the sort of true blue politics of the area just because of the way that those sort of seats were contested but also because of those demographic changes that you mentioned Freddie this council is almost like a perfect encapsulation of two trends in these local elections that stood out to me which is First of all, Labour benefiting from Londoners or urban voters moving out into kind of commuterville and bringing their politics with them, which had happened in Bracknell. And I was speaking to a councillor who represents one of those seats there who was saying, we've got some new housing here and these young families are coming in and voting in different ways. But then also you have those very extremely posh, like one of the poshest places that I've ever done any political reporting before with four cars in each driveway kind of places where the people who had always voted Tory there including the Lib Dem council candidate who I was going around with, had enough of the way that the party was conducting itself and also really wanted to see some change, material change in their lives. The roads were poor, the surgery was in special measures, the river was polluted. It was interesting to see that every a lot of people on the doorstep mentioned the river because it's almost it's one of those stories that took Westminster by surprise but has almost become a Westminster cliche now in, in that weird way that things do. But it, people were bringing it up. They were really 
angry about it. And they were relating it, even though it's a, an issue with the water company, they were relating it to this general feeling that the country is misgoverned. Yeah, it's one of those issues where MPs actually listen to their constituency and they're getting thousands of letters. And suddenly <laughs> it bleeds through into Commons debates and questions. What's the sort of narrative now about what these results necessarily show us about the next general election? Ben, you'll be angry with me for answering this question because we can't extrapolate. But there seems to be a picture growing of Labour did well, but they didn't quite do well enough for a majority. And so now we're going to ask every single Labour figure whether or not they'd go into coalition with X party. To sort of answer this, what, what do these results mean? Uh, the next general election. Well, I take the view that others take, and I said it before, that this does would put Labour on course for majority if they're repeated, if you factor for differential turnout. And just bear this in mind, all right? So last year, the Conservatives won 34% in the polls, Labour on 40%. This was after Partygate. Boris Johnson was still Prime Minister. Labour had a six-point lead. Now Labour has a 15-point lead. Labour's are along 44%, which is up four points on this time last year. And the Conservatives are on 29%, which is down five points on this time last year, okay? If you look at the wards that were up last year and were up this year, you see a repeat of that. So last year, the Tories were on 31% in these types of wards. Now they're on 27%. That's down by four points. And then you have Labour on 41% this year, which is up from two points from last year. The swing we're seeing in these wards is similar to the swing we're seeing in the polls. The idea that this does not mean a Labour majority really does seem a little bit half-baked and I dare say, not to criticise the BBC or Sky, based on some partial results and partial analysis. The numbers I'm giving you there are based on all the results that I've spent a very long time collating with some good friends over with Britain Alex. What does it, I'll be honest with you, I think it should mean a Labour majority. I don't really think this is necessarily up for debate. What we are seeing in places like Medway, what, like what you saw, Rochester and Strood, which used to go UKIP, and even in Clacton, it is a general exhaustion from voters. If you want, if you want to create a demographic co- call it exhausted England, because that's what a lot of us are. A lot of them are just tired with it all. The priority, like I say, is not immigration. Even to those that voted leave in 2016, the priority remains the cost of living, prices, inflation, jobs, not immigration, nothing else. It is the economy. And I think our obsession perhaps to talk about something different, oh, we, let's talk about immigration now, is dis- disconnected from where the voters stand. In Chester, for example, I often ask the Conservatives, like, why do you think you keep losing? And they blame it on students. I bet they, they love blame- that, Ben. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 I actually often ask them, why don't they put up local candidates? Because at the by-election, they put up a candidate all the way from Congleton, which is an hour drive away. And it was, the, it was a bit embarrassing for them. But there we go. But they always say to me, why do we keep losing to Labour? And they always say they blame student voters coming out. They blame Labour getting student voters out. It seems like almost comfort narratives. And not to contradict Freddie, because he's banged to rights on demographic movement, people moving out. But it feels like a comfort narrative to think that the reason Labour are leading in Worthing, in Medway, in Thanet, mm-hmm. outside of London, is just because people migrated there. No, the locals are also exhausted too. Yeah. We saw these shifts long before the housing crisis. We sh- the housing crisis has been going on for ages. It's not just demographic movement. It's not just people moving. It is exhaustion from the natives as well. And that's why, yeah, I'm creating this demographic, exhausted England, because that's what we are. You heard it here first. (laughs) Rachel, how much does it matter that it's these questions about a potential coalition keep being fired at Labour figures now? You wrote about that idea of the coalition of chaos not really sticking this time around in Morning Call this morning. Yeah, I think kind of notable just how little reaction there has been from the public. I don't think it doesn't seem to be a thing that people necessarily fear. It's an idea that they're probably quite used to by now. 
I think here in coalition of chaos thrown at the Labour Party last time round, and then voters having witnessed a decade of absolute chaos in many ways has maybe made the calculation different for people. I think actually, though, if there's going to be a fear factor at this next election, it's probably one that may benefit Labour. If I think if the Conservatives continue to try and push this line that some kind of pact with Labour and the Liberal Democrats or some kind of pact involved in the SNP is going to be this huge thing to be feared. I think a lot of voters will look at the polls, see that the Conservatives are behind, potentially ask the Conservatives questions about who they would go into coalition with. So that, that certainly came up at questions after PMQ's state up to the Prime Minister's spokesman, his press secretary, people asking who would the Conservatives go into coalition with then? Would it be the DUP or Reform or whoever? And they couldn't answer that question either. But I think the real kind of fear factor in voters' minds might end up being the fear of a second election, a fear of more uncertainty if there's not a clear result. Mm. Though I think that might actually work in Labour's favour ultimately, because I think voters might think, well, what is the what is the thing that's least least likely to exhaust me further? And it's going to be <laughs> a clear result, and that might be a Labour result. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think there are two things going on with this sort of coalition talk. We've got the narrative leading up to the election. And I think, yeah, Rachel's right. Because of the chaos we've had over the past few years, that won't land as well as it did back in 2015. And then also we've got the actual arithmetic of a post-election coalition. Is that actually going to happen? And if some party or no, no party does, no party has a majority, then who are they going to go to? And I think in that scenario, we're going to have Labour in a reasonably strong position because both the Liberal Democrats and the SNP won't want to support a Conservative government. That gives them quite a lot of leverage. And I think also there'll be, especially with the implosion of the SNP that's currently going on, there'll be quite a good argument to say, actually, no, there isn't a mandate or a sufficient reason to give an independence referendum. And then with the Liberal Democrats, it'll be really interesting. People are already saying that the key demand that they'll ask for is electoral reform. That's very popular with the Labour membership. We saw them vote for it at a conference Mm -hmm. last year. And Keir Starmer was very much opposed to that. So it would require him to make quite a, a stark U-turn, which is not beyond his powers. <laughs> but, I'd, ju- uh, I'd just point out, it, that also came up after PMQs today, and it was a slightly different line from the Labour spokesperson, which was more along the lines of not ruling it out for all time, just in their next manifesto. Sure. Let's see, that's it. It would still require quite a stark U-turn. They're tricky negotiations, so it's two different things there. So I think it's worth keeping those both in mind. After the break, we'll look into the prospects of the smaller parties. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So we've been talking about all of the potential different coalition partners for Labour and the Conservatives. So let's talk a little bit about their prospects. We mentioned the Lib Dems and Greens in the first part of the podcast. So I want to start with Reform UK. What went on for them in these local elections? And did we get any idea that there is some kind of flank to the right of the Conservative Party that might be threatening their popularity in some places? They did remarkably poorly. I think they got about six seats. The Residents Association got 99 I think all of those six seats were in Derby. And I think as Ben mentioned last time, one of the key reasons for that is that they're very popular local candidates and they've been around for a long time. So I think it was a bit of a slap in the face for reform. They have been growing in confidence in recent months, but their platform is just so incoherent without the extremely popular, almost cultish personality of Nigel Farage and without that unifying issue of Brexit. They're really struggling. And the other thing to say on that is the Tories have tacked so far to the right that the gaps have opened up to their left, not to their right. We saw Andrew Bridgen this week join the Reclaim party, which is Lauren Fox's party. So the Reclaim now seems to be doing better than Reform UK. Wow. A good time to be a party with Re at the beginning of its name to compete with Reform. So, Ben, what about Labour? Are they tacking so far to this sort of centre ground that they are neglecting their left flank in a way. Are there signs that the Greens, some people might stick with the Greens maybe in a general election scenario to Labour's detriment? I know that there is some frustration in places like the Wirral where the Greens are encroaching on Labour territory. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's about left or right. This, the, the thing, this is the thing with the Greens. Its appeal is broad. As a party brand, it, it actually is attractive to quite a many Conservative voters. And I think when we think of the Greens, we think of the activists. We think of, to be honest, a lot of their spokespeople. I remember, I can't remember who it was, somewhat, one, of the, one of the Green bods went on the telly to say the reason we're winning in mid-summer is because of voters are rejecting austerity. Maybe in practice, most voters do dislike austerity, but I don't think we're having a left-wing revolution in Mid-Suffolk, in Bury St. Edmunds. No, no disrespect. No, much love to some of my green friends, but I don't think that's really happening. No, the Wirral, they saw gains, some really good gains, actually. When we did that video going to the Wirral, to Stoke, to Crewe, all of the candidates I interviewed, including the Conservative one, held onto their seats or gained seats, and the Greens did remarkably well in the Wirral. But the thing with green gains in Labour territory is I don't think it's necessarily seepage from Keir Starmer to a more left-wing alternative. I think it's more, who is the best anti-establishment alternative to your incumbent council? Because the Wirral is Labour-run. Tyneside, I think it's, what was it, South Tyneside, is also Labour-run. And where the Greens did really was in South Tyneside. And the reason was that, because of that, wasn't because the local Labour administration was necessarily centrist, Blair, right-wing, whatever, all because Mm. of Keir Starmer. It's because who is the best party to rage against the status quo? in South Tyneside. It's, it's not the Labour Party because the Labour Party is your incumbent. And that's where Labour does particularly well. I suspect when Labour gets into government, we will see these numbers shift about a little bit. You might see fewer green seats in countryside England because they will be forced to tack to the left because they'll be forced to go on the offensive against the Labour administration. And I dare say you might see Labour doing, not the Greens rather, you'll see the Greens doing much better in places like Sheffield where they're doing okay If you go to Sheffield City Central, if you get off the train station, you are in a green ward, a green ward that voted 
53% for a green candidate. Okay, this is where we are in the centre of Sheffield. Bristol Central, or rather formerly Bristol West, absolutely. I don't think right now the seepage of Labour to green seats and Labour to green votes in local elections, emphasis on local elections because the general election is different, I don't think it's necessarily down to Labour tacking centre or a bit more right wing. I think it really Mm -hmm. is just where they're gaining in Labour seats, where they're gaining Labour areas is because Labour has had a stranglehold for that long. Thinking closer to home, I could talk about Cheshire West now. Labour lost a seat in Ellesmere Port. Ellesmere Port, by the way, which isn't exactly... I think Ellesmere Port voted leave, if I remember rightly. They lost a seat to the Greens there because... Labour's the incumbent council, and because hydrogen, green hydrogen, was an issue, which the Greens opposed and won on. Again, just to get back to my very long-winded point, it's very much the Greens are the anti-establishment alternative in a lot of Labour safe seat boroughs, and they're doing quite well in them. Like last year in London, the Greens stormed it in an Olympic Park ward in, what is it, Newham? I think it's Newham. Yeah, it's it's just anti-establishments railing against the system. The Greens do really well there. Okay. And is that the same dynamic for the Lib Dems then, Rachel? Are they the sort of anti-establishment candidates of choice for areas that have been Tory one-party states? I guess at this time, although I think it's probably worth thinking about where the Lib Dems are winning, like Bath and North East Somerset. I think a lot of those sort of maybe remainers in those areas are coming back to a different party or you have more agricultural areas that are frustrated with the Brexit deal that they've got and looking at Lib Dems and thinking that I prefer them to Labour. I can't go all the way towards voting Labour, so I'd prefer a Lib Dem. And the Lib Dems have just had for generations quite quite a good ground campaign in very particular areas and really know how to execute a good local election campaign. So I think it's a mixture of those things, really. I don't think it's necessarily just them being anti-establishment. I think the Lib Dems have got a longer tradition as being an alternative to the Conservatives that don't push them as as further to the left as a Labour Party might. Mm. And how does Labour cope with these questions about being propped up by other parties? Because obviously they have a slightly different response to being asked this question about the Lib Dems than they do about the SNP, for example. And one of Keir Starmer's problems reputationally is that people get a sense that he's sitting on the fence or perhaps that he's even a bit slippery or blows with the wind. This feels a little bit like that to me in his responses. I don't know if you agree, Freddie. The one thing that Labour spin doctrines and spokespeople were saying on the Friday after the local elections was that this means that Labour's heading for a majority. I think that basically shows how little they want to talk about this. They want the narrative to be about them so they can focus on them. So I think just obviously they don't really want all the debate to be about the Lib Dems or the SNP. That's just not very helpful for them. So I think that's they will try and move the conversation on from that, even if other people want to talk about it. The way that... Starmer's chosen to speak about it is to make a real distinction between the SNP and the Lib Dems. I think he was asked something like six or seven times by, I think it was Bess Rigby, who's pretty merciless when it comes <laughs> to when she gets it but between her teeth. And Starmer was very keen to be clear that he wouldn't do a deal with the SNP, called it hypothetical as to whether or not there would be any kind of Labour Lib Dem pact. And I think that kind of benefits them north of the border because it makes the choice for Scottish voters in some of those like three-way marginals much clearer, forces them to think about what the real compromise might be in terms of SNP versus Labour. You know, you're not going to have an SNP government that's going to be in coalition with Labour. Therefore, as voters, you might think about how you make those choices. And I just think that this doesn't seem to damage them so much to be seen as more centre-left when it comes to the vote, some of the voters that they're trying to target in some of these aspirational 
areas. I think they've nuanced how they speak about it rather than trying to just completely reject it all out of hand and look like they're running scared of the question. Mm. And I suppose for the Lib Dems, when they're asked a similar question, the dynamic is different to a time when you had Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader, for example. Your voters or the voters that you're trying to target are not necessarily as afraid of putting a Labour-led government into power. That's something that I was told when I was out following campaigners in Bracknell Forest, for example. I think the quote was, people can see that the left or centre-left aren't lunatics now. And so it's helping us, the Lib Dems, because they don't, people, Tory switchers might not feel as reluctant to let a Labour government in by giving their support to the Lib Dems, either for the first time or just for the first time in a while. Yeah, Anne Whittacombe made the same argument in Noosh oh, really? a couple of weeks wow, ago. Wow, okay. Standing <laughs> on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> With regards to reform, I don't think that would help them much. But I think the, the analysis <laughs> is correct. Once the Jeremy Corbyn's gone and the fear factor's gone, then I think people will look more, more likely to look to the Lib Dems, whether that means that they're going <laughs> to experience the same number of voters. Obviously, it's not the same. But yeah, I think it is a factor to, to think about. One thing I'd note about why Lib is local elections campaign has been quite successful is that they've made it all about council tax and high taxes generally, which I think Rishi Tunak touched on today, pointing at Rachel Reeves going, how are you going to pay for it all? And I think that's those are the questions that will come for Labour now if they want to continue to target those kind of Tory Lib Dem switches. They're going to have to talk a little bit more about how they're yeah, going to pay for some of their tax cuts. Yeah, completely. But it's the beauty of the Liz Trust era is that now a Labour has this automatic response, which they've not really had for 10 <laughs> yeah. years. They can automatically say something that everyone recognises, everyone understands, everyone agrees on. The Tories, whatever you want to say, they crash the economy. Mm. That's the phrase. It resonates with people and it's such an easy way, such a gift to them to secure their place as the party of economic credibility. Yeah, and it can still be used. Rishi Sunak tries to draw a line between the Liz Trust time and his own leadership. And obviously there is a big con contrast between the two characters and the atmosphere around the governments. But people's mortgages are still coming up for renewal now and they're noticing the impact of that mini budget X number of months on. So it doesn't go away, this idea that they crashed the economy. Like you say, it is a complete gift to Labour rhetorically. Thanks, guys, for this deep dive into the local elections. I know you've already chatted about them before, so thanks for humouring me. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth, Freddie Hayward and Ben Walker. We'll be back on Monday when we'll be going behind the scenes of political panel shows. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from our podcast and of some of the reporting that Ben mentioned around the country on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Misha Frankel Duval. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.